Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. Kyle is not with us today. We have a very special guest and we'll get right to it. But first, I have a small explanation. Some of you may remember that I announced in the show about a year ago that I started my own podcast production company. It is a network called The Podglomerate. You can check it out at thepodglomerate.com. P-O-D-G-L-O-M-E-R-A-T-E, like a podcast conglomerate. The network has about a dozen shows, but one of my favorites is a show called Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. You might not know who Hinch and Rossi are, but they are very famous IndyCar drivers. IndyCar is not F1, it is not NASCAR, it is its own kind of racing. Prior to creating the show, I didn't know what it was. Now I'm a huge fan. I bet on all the races. I produce the show. And we get to talk to some of the most famous drivers in the world every day. James Hinchcliffe and Alexander Rossi are currently two of the top 10 racers in the world in IndyCar. And they have a podcast where they interview other people in all kinds of industries that are at the top of their game as well. The reason that you're hearing about this now is because they did an interview a couple months ago with John Green. The John Green, one half of the Vlog Brothers, author of The Fault in Our Stars, Turtles All the Way Down, Paper Towns, another dozen books. They've all been turned into movies or are in the process of being turned into movies. He's just generally a very cool guy. He also has a podcast called The Anthropocene Review. Uh, He does a little bit of everything, and the reason that he is on the show is because he happens to be a very big race fan who has... James on his fantasy IndyCar racing team. I won't go too much further into the interview. Uh, Just note that it was recorded about three months ago. You can listen to it on uh, CastBox or wherever you listen to podcasts. And this was also part one of a two-part interview. So if you like it, it's not totally about writing, but they do touch on that. Uh, If you like the show, then go find Off Track with Hinch and Rossi wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can listen to part two, plus a bunch of other interviews that they've done with Frankie Muniz, with Tony Stewart, with uh, The Bachelor, Ari Luyendek Jr., with Tara Jolie. It's pretty cool. And they also talk about the Indy 500, which just happened this previous weekend. If you want to know how that turned out, just head over to IndyCar.com. Thanks so much, guys, and we will talk to you at the end of the show. This is Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. 
Hello and welcome back, guys, to Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. I am Hinch. And I am Alex Rossi. And this week, we have uh, an exceptionally special guest that we Far are... Far more talented than us. In many, many ways. And we are thrilled and excited and thankful that he decided to join us, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Green. Hi. How's it going, guys? Very well. How are you? Good, good. It is super convenient that you live in Indianapolis. Yeah, no, and nice for me as well, because it's so easy to get to the track. So let's... <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of dogs, John, <laughs> we we, uh, we saw your latest video um, yeah. about your dog. Yeah. So How's Willie doing? He's doing all right. Willie has cancer and he's he's at the end of his life and it's uh, it's rough, man. I mean, somebody told me that owning a dog is making an appointment with grief and that's true. I mean, you know, dogs have a lifespan and yeah, it's all right. You know, the thing about Willie though is that I made that video and I thought, this is it. You know, like we really thought we were going in the next day or so. And then he just perked right back up. <laughs> and he's been great the last few days. He's been in great spirits. So who knows? I, Willie's uh, had cancer for two years. So I, I, I'm not writing him off at this point. Who knows? Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, you know, we, we sit here uh, doing a, a new podcast. You yourself have a new podcast. Yeah, I have a new podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed, in which I review a, a weird random stuff on a five-star scale. Uh, so I, I gave... <laughs> I think I gave Canada Geese two stars, and I gave Diet Dr. Pepper five stars. But I also, uh, the one I'm writing now, I'm reviewing uh, turf grass, the like yeah. lawn grass that's everywhere on Earth now. It's With, the it's in Ryan Hunter Ray's backyard. Yes, it, that's it, that's what he put in his backyard. Yeah, and then um, I'm also reviewing uh, Super Mario Kart and uh, Googling Strangers. So you're reviewing Super Mario Kart. Yeah. What, like, what does that entail? Well, in this case, sort of an overview of the 25 years of uh, the various Super Mario Karts. Uh, and, and what's the best? Well, this is important because you're looking at some Super Mario Kart diehard fans. You so. got to understand that I'm 15 years older than you, probably. You don't so, look it. Uh, that's very kind of you, but you'll find this as you get older. If you just gain 30 pounds, you can continue to look young. If you just gain like <laughs> five pounds a year forever, you continue to have a baby face forever. <laughs> So I, the 1992 original Super Mario Kart is a fantastic game. Right. Um, the new Mario Kart 8 that I have for my Nintendo Switch is also a good game, but I, I'm always going to love the 1992 Mario Kart. That was, on, that was on Super Nintendo, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's your Mario Kart game? Mario Kart 64. We play a lot of 64. Do you I, really? We, yeah. we actually each have an N64. And we put it on our motorhomes that travel to the racetracks. And really? Marco Andretti, Alex Rossi, Connor Daly, myself, occasionally producer Thim. Uh, we dive into some some Mario Kart during rain delays, or you know, night races early in the day, or just like or just to get in the zone before qualifying. It's true. Yeah. Do you <laughs> feel like you're better because of your profession at Mario Kart than the average person? So, if we were talking like a general racing game, be it Forza, Project Cars, Gran Turismo, I would say absolutely. Uh, the fact that producer Thim, who's never driven anything in his entire life, regularly like schools destroys all four us. Of us yes. I'm going to say no. Okay. My daughter insists that I am a professional race car driver. Like when people ask what uh, <laughs> I do, my daughter tells them that daddy, that that her daddy is a race car driver. That and how old your how old your daughter? She's four. Okay. And I was I did one race on a dirt track for charity when she was like two and a half, and okay. it made a big impression. <laughs> Not least because my car caught fire and I hit the wall, and I mean I I it turns out surprisingly enough a 
poor race car driver. <laughs> were those separate incidents, the fire on the wall, or was that like a one did one? Right. So I hit the wall. I hit the wall going. I would estimate like one half of one mile per hour. So I had almost come to a full stop before I hit the wall. I just tapped the wall, and then I I was ready to start uh, start the car again. But then all these people were running up to me because my car With was on fire. fire. <laughs> <laughs> Where was this? Uh, it was in Minnesota. All right. Yeah, a little dirt track in Minnesota. It was a lot of fun, but I have no uh, talent for it. However, it made this huge impression on my daughter, and I got a trophy, uh, whereas in most of my work, I don't get trophies. So do you correct her? Oh, yeah. No, oh, I say, like, I'm not bad. a race car driver, Alice. Like, we, we know some race car drivers, but I'm not one of them. And then she says, but you did race in a race car. And I'm like, you know, touche. <laughs> Man, that's bad. When already at four, they're countering your oh, arguments oh, yeah, in no. ways that you can't really fight. No, I can't win. <laughs> that's bad. Okay, so let's. While the racing conversation started, uh, as I as I believe, if I've, if I've read correctly, you were born in Indianapolis, though you didn't stay here long. Right. I moved when I was six weeks old. Yes. So I don't have a great memory of my childhood in Indianapolis. But my dad grew up uh, going to the race, um, went to the race every year when he was a kid. And uh, we had the chance to move back here, although I had no relationship with Indianapolis in 2007. My wife is a curator of contemporary art, and she got a job at the IMA, and we okay. moved back here. And So kind of coincidence. It was actually her, her total job. Total coincidence, yeah. Oh, wow. But uh, I really fell in love with Indianapolis. I love, I love it here. Um, IndyCar is part of the reason I love it. I mean, when, when we first moved here, I had no friends. I knew no one, uh, and I met... Uh, someone in our neighborhood, and essentially all of the friends that I have made in the 10 years that I've lived in Indianapolis are through this IndyCar Fantasy League that I've been part of for the last 10 years. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that, and it's been a really wonderful decade that we've had here, and now we're very settled here. I can't imagine living anywhere else. So this IndyCar Fantasy League, yeah. I was uh, told in 2015 you kept a certain driver on your team, even though he was incapacitated, <laughs> severely not driving a race car. Yeah, um, I did. James. So, I did. I mean, that was pretty, very kind of you, cool. sir. That was very kind of you. I did not drop Hinch for the for the whole season. That was that is that is very sweet. I mean, what do you see in James? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he saw well, how fast I drove that uh, wheelchair out of the hospital, <laughs> and he's like, "Kids got some." <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought it seemed like the right right thing to do. Um, and yeah, I've always I've always been an admirer of you as a driver in the way you go about your work in the community and everything. And I, and I really. Uh, yeah, I've just looked up to that, so it was it was a little small way that I could uh, say thank you for that. I have to say, for the record, that in any race we have four drivers apiece, and in any race only your top three drivers count. So I was really just saying that oh, I wasn't. Hey. <laughs> I, I, it's not like I was throwing the fantasy league. I was just saying my like my top three drivers are so You're just good. Committed to them, you yeah. Know, you, you, there was no alternate there, right? Copy. All right, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I'll, I'll still take it. I'll still take it. Did you do you remember your first Indy 500 that you went to? Have you have you been to many? I do. I go every year. Um, it's a huge part of my life. It's my it, it's my favorite day of the year. It's it's Christmas for me. We usually I, I take the kids to pole day and uh, we we go to a lot of the qualification days as well. But my first Indy 500 was was in 2007. Okay. Um, oh, it's great fun. What's uh, what's an Indy car race you haven't been to that you like? It's on a, a bucket list race to go to. So I grew up in Alabama, mm -hmm. um, and I've been to Barber a lot of times, but I've never been there to see an Indy car race. Really? And that would be really fun. The Indy car series would love to have you as a guest. If sure. You no, come I'd down. love to. I'd love to come down for Bring that. Bring the one. family. And I've always wanted to go to. St. Pete. My friends have all been to St. Pete, and they all talk about how fun it awesome. is. Awesome. It's a great race. Toronto's yeah. a great race. Tr Toronto's a great race. Yeah. Toronto's cool. Yeah. There's it's a couple worth, you should check out. I have some issues sure. with uh, getting into Canada because I was denied entry in uh, 1995 due to <laughs> insufficient funds. 
You can be denied entry into Canada for you can. insufficient funds. Yeah, I was just trying to go for the day, and I had a loaf of bread and uh, some peanut butter and a, a two-liter root beer. Um, so I was good. I yeah. was going to be fine. Um, but it's a week's worth of food. <laughs> it's a week's supply. Yeah, I could have stayed for a while. Yeah. But they, uh, yeah, I got pulled into the, and they asked me how much money I had. I didn't have any credit cards or anything because I was 18. And uh, they, they turned me around, which was fine. No big deal. I, didn't, I don't harbor a grudge at all. The problem is that now I am permanently on a list of potential undesirables. So every time I go to Canada, I'm taken into like a windowless room. You go to the penalty box. The first thing they ask me is, have you ever been denied entrance into Canada? And I say, yes. <laughs> have you, have you? Explains to them yet? That you oh yeah, have a yeah, yeah, movie? yeah. I've I've explained them that like things like... have. There's been a big. There's been a big okay. shift. All right, in my <laughs> quality of life in a bunch of different ways, and I feel really qualified to come to Canada and make sure that I'm going to be able to have enough money to get out, or I wouldn't be coming. And uh, yeah, they. I asked somebody once. I said, "Is there anything that I can do to get on the list?" And the very polite, of course, <laughs> extraordinarily polite. They're always wonderful Sorry, to work with. But, yeah. um, he said, "Yeah, he said you're going to die on the list." No that was his, those were his exact words. Oh, can't can't get yourself off that no. at all. Huh? So what you know? So I don't know if I'm going to go to Toronto. That's Nothing fair. personal. No, that's fair. Yeah. I uh, I'm I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed <laughs> in my in my people's way of dealing with this issue. It's I I really it, it's not their fault. It's really it's my fault for trying to enter Canada with forty three dollars and a I didn't know that that was illegal though. Like I didn't realize that made you an undesirable. I, I, I don't like think they have the border to admit anyone that. entry, right? Like they don't have no, to they let an American in, so it's up to them. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. A lot of people now know you as author... John Green, but you kind of first got some notoriety online with with YouTube. Yeah. So explain that the 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 project. Uh, brother was it Brothers Two Point Yeah, Brother Two Point Yeah, I'd I'd published a couple books before we started that, but they hadn't reached particularly broad audiences. I guess would be the generous way of saying it. Um, I mean, books in general are it's pretty small small world, but. We, my brother and I started making video blogs back and forth to each other on January 1st, 2007. And for a whole year, every weekday, one of us would make a video or the other. And we intended it as a project for us to get closer because I left for boarding school when my brother was 11. I never really knew him that well. I always admired him a lot, but I, I never knew him that well. And um, it was a chance to try to get to know each other better, but it was also a public conversation that we were trying to involve people in. And it grew, you know, beyond anything that we, we had ever imagined. And this was your only form of communication. Yeah. So we only talked via these video blogs. And if we uh, communicated textually, we would we would get punished. And sometimes the punishment <laughs> would be like eating a blenderized Happy Meal or... Oh, wow. Uh, Did that happen? Yeah. One time I had to eat like 17 peeps in, uh, in one minute. 
which oh. I can't recommend. No. I don't think you should eat 17 peeps in one lifetime. That's a really good point. I think <laughs> I think that's what the CDC recommends. I think it's <laughs> up to 16 in a life. Yeah, no doubt. And where did the inspiration for that come from? Because, I mean, that's that's an amazing idea. And, yeah, well, it was I mean, so It's kind of before people were doing this kind of thing. It started for us because we really liked video as a kind of center for forming communities. There was a guy named Zay Frank who now heads up BuzzFeed's video projects who had a show, uh, and the people who watched that show would do projects together. Like they would play him in chess, but they would collectively decide what the next move was, things like that, that we found really interesting and kind of compelling. And so I think what we really wanted to do was to build a community like that one. Okay, if you could communicate with only one medium for the rest of your life, what would it be? Are we, are we looking at a social media? Are we looking at vlogging? Are we looking at texting? What, what, what's your jam? I think I would use real life. I think we might have been underappreciating real life this whole time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you mean like face-to-face interaction with humans? What I'm for Like FaceTime? I, yeah. <laughs> Skype. <laughs> okay, uh, that I can get behind. What, what, what he was talking about sounded scary. John, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at here. Well, I can't I don't think I can I don't think I can beat Alex's joke, so I think we've just <laughs> gotta move on to the next question. It was too good. That was that was pretty solid, Whew. actually. Um, do you do you consider like writing your books a way of kind of this communication with people? I mean in yeah. a remote removed way or Yeah, in a very removed way. I mean I sometimes liken it to you know that childhood pool game Marco Polo? Mm-hmm. I sometimes liken it to that, like you, you spend like three or four years in your basement writing and in a way you're saying Marco, 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 Marco the whole time. like Waiting for someone to say polo back. Right. And, uh, and then when the book comes out, hopefully people do. I, I've always liked it as a form of communication because in real life I'm pretty shy and it can be difficult for me to express myself or to articulate things that are really important to me. And writing for me has always been a way to try to do that. And I like being alone in that work for long periods of time, but that at the same time is very isolating, very lonely. So it feels really good when people actually they find validate, the work. They validate that. Yeah, yeah. So what was the book where people said polo? I mean, uh, I mean, a couple people said polo after my first couple books, but it wasn't when The Fault in Our Stars came out. That was when uh, it, it was really overwhelming. It, all of a sudden, you know, it, it felt like instead of having a, a really lovely career writing books, I was going to have a, a different career from the one that I, I'd imagined for myself. What was that transition like? You know, this this book comes out, I think it was number one bestseller within a week. Yeah. week or two. And yeah. That's, yeah. you know, a bit of uncharted territory. What, what was that transition like from kind of... And did you know it was good, like when you sent it out? I did not know that it was better than my other books. I mean... I really enjoyed writing it. It was really cathartic to write. It was difficult to write. I mean, I was, in a lot of ways, I was writing in response to grief. I'd, I'd lost a friend, a young friend to cancer, and, um, and I wrote the book kind of in a, in a furious, angry, sad period after that. And I felt good about the story, but I didn't know, you know, I had no way of knowing if people were going to respond to it. When it came out, it became clear pretty early on that it was going to be very different from my previous books. When well, it, it was. Yeah, and it was, it was way different. I mean, it, it was vastly different. And I mean, did that change your, I mean, it changed your life from the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bought, uh, I bought my dream car, a 2012 Chevy Volt. Oh. That was, that was your dream car. Yeah, I mean, have you ever driven a Volt? Because zero, zero to 20, it's amazing. <laughs> right. So torquey. Yeah. Can you kind of 
put us in your shoes a little bit. I mean, how do you being at the time, right? A 30 year old guy who hasn't had kids yet. How are you writing this beautiful book that has now touched so many millions of people from the eyes of a young girl? I actually finished it about a year after my son was born. And I found that incredibly helpful because it wasn't until I had a kid that I really understood that in in one sense at least at least love genuinely is stronger than death that that you know no matter what your religious beliefs are when my grandfather died he is still my grandfather and when someone you love dies the relationship that that you have with them doesn't end and understanding that in the moment that henry was born i understood that as long as henry or i uh, am alive i will be his father and he will be my son and i think that insight allowed me to write the book with hope, which otherwise I was struggling to do. I was struggling to find anything other than kind of despair inside of it. And and as far as like, how do you write from the perspective of a teenager? I don't really know. I mean, I didn't really know what it was like to be a teenager when I was a teenager. Like I wasn't particularly, I didn't like know the slang. You you weren't good at it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I did not, this is going to surprise you guys, but I did not crush it as a teenager. (laughs) I am shocked. (laughs) Um, I'm genuinely shocked. Yeah. But I think the emotional experiences are pretty universal. Like the feeling of falling in love for the first time, there's an intensity to it that falling in love for the second time is great. And I'm very grateful that I got to fall in love a second time because it meant that I, you know, didn't end up marrying the, the, my first love, right. who's a lovely person. Just <laughs> throwing that out there in yeah, case she's listening. Yeah. Uh, but falling in love for the second time, you're like, this is wonderful. But it also reminds me of the previous time that, that this happened. Whereas when you fall in love for the first time, you're like, oh, man, this has never happened in all of human history. Like, this is a completely unprecedented experience. Feeling that newness of asking big questions, of, of looking at the big questions of life or of those big experiences like falling in love or dealing with grief or whatever, feeling that newness is really appealing to me because there's no irony in it. There's no distance from it. You know, the, one of the great things about teenagers is they it's so intense. And so I like trying to like go back to that place and write from that perspective. Do you see the books as a, cause I know that from what I've read, you know, you like to engage with the audience and I mean, are the books a way to then kind of have a platform to teach these young adults afterwards? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I don't think that books, um, should be in the like, uh, education business and, or novels shouldn't in the, in the sense of like teaching lessons or, straightforward moral uh, compass guideline right yeah I don't think that they should be like uh, ethical guidelines to, to life or whatever but I do think that whether you write for young people or not I think you, you or I, I at least feel a responsibility to my audience to try to tell an honest story and I do feel like the truth is ultimately always hopeful like I feel like nihilism and despair are dishonest and or or at least like not well thought out and so I do, I do feel a responsibility in, in that sense to try to be hopeful while still being honest. So you, you write this book, it takes off, uh, although it's, uh, I, I kind of want to talk about the transition into a movie and what, what yeah. it's like having, having your novel turned into a feature film. Pretty intense, <laughs> pretty weird. Cool phone call to get, I bet. But you, you actually sold a book first that never got made, right? Yeah, I, it wasn't a cool phone call to get because by, by the <laughs> oh. time I sold the rights to Fault in Our Stars, I was convinced that... I was essentially scamming Hollywood. (laughs) I think it's okay. They've done it enough. Yeah. But my feeling was, oh, they'll never make this movie, but it's nice of them to send me this check for the option. Right. (laughs) 
Uh, and then I read the screenplay that uh, Neustadter and Weber wrote. And when I read the screenplay, I do remember thinking, oh, my God, like they might make this movie. And from there, it, they did. I got so lucky. I mean, I think it's very rare that authors have good movie experiences, but I had a really, two really lovely ones where I felt included in every part of the process. I never felt like my voice wasn't heard. I never felt like they were trying to betray anything that was important in the story. And the kids who were in the movie, the, everybody who was in the movie were just wonderful people and people I, I, you know, I still talk to and still think really highly of. So I got super lucky. And um, but probably the coolest thing to come out of it is that I, I, I think if they hadn't made the movies, I wouldn't have been the um, pace car driver at the Angie's List Grand Prix, <laughs> which was where does that rank as you know highlight perks of the job? Uh Top five, for sure, <laughs> just because it's the first time all of my friends were properly jealous of me, <laughs> or they are properly impressed by my, uh, <laughs> by my achievements. Fair, fair. Yeah. I get that at home. I, I make the joke, but it's not a joke at all. You know, I, I grew up with this, this group of buddies back home in, in Toronto, and uh, they always knew me as the, the guy that raced. Like, I had a go-kart when I was nine. I met them. I was already racing, so it wasn't a thing. that wasn't a thing for them. So when I made it to IndyCar, they're like, yeah, that's what you do. And then one day I came home and I was like, guys, I'm getting a beer named after me. They're like, that is by far the coolest <laughs> thing that you've ever accomplished in your entire life. Yeah, yeah, no. So for me, driving the pace car was the equivalent of getting the beer. Which segues nicely into a question we like to ask all of our guests all of our guests on off track. Uh, what is the fastest you've ever driven? I assume this might be correlated to your pace car experience. Actually not. Oh, here we go. This is good. Cause you said, you know, zero to 20 in your, in your volt. So, well, also you got to remember it's the grand prix. So I drove the pace lap at, I think a top speed of maybe 65. In fact, I, I think, um, who had the pole? What year was it? 2016, 2015. No, it was Pagano. Pagano had the pole. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Pagano right. had the pole, and he was he kept he kept getting real close, yeah. real and that. But my instinct then is to slow down. Really? Yeah. Oh no, that normally is supposed to scare you to go. Faster. No, no, no. What it made me want to do is like I'll show you. I'm oh. deciding the pace of the pace lap. That would have gone down poorly if you. Break checked him. I, no, no, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> I would have been totally for that. But no, I, I like that you kind of stamped your authority on the whole thing. The fastest I've ever driven is in Montana on a very flat, uh, long stretch of road in a place where there is no speed limits. And I don't think I got to triple digits, but I was close. Close to. And what were you in? <sighs> I mean, like a Volkswagen Passat, I think. Okay. So it's not a particularly glorious car. Although I, the fastest I've ever been in a car right. was the two-seater. Yes. Where'd you do that? At the Speedway? At the Speedway. Yeah. Was Mario driving you? No. Uh, Sarah Fisher was driving. And it was like 180, I think. And, yeah. the, and I was screaming at her to pull <laughs> the car over. Really? And she, You didn't enjoy she it? She says she couldn't hear me. I had a great time in retrospect. Yes. It's one of those things that you only enjoy later. You think you know what it's like to drive a race car because you drive a car. On some level, if you can just get in that two-seater and you can think, okay, they're going 40 miles an hour faster and they're also making the choices involved in how fast they go and where they are, and then you think about how close the racing is, when that hits home for you, it completely changes your relationship with race car driving. I mean, to me, what you guys do is like a superpower. We need to like take that. Yeah, that's just going to be a new IndyCar campaign. Absolutely. <laughs> that's just going to be our new That's radio going everywhere. Ad. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, what'd you guys think? That is the first time that I've really showed off anything that we've been doing over at the Podglomerate. Although you can check out any one of the dozen shows that we have at thepodglomerate.com. We're also launching a bunch more this summer and fall. Uh, this was Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. You can follow the show at Ask Off Track on Twitter, or you can go to uh, Hinchtown or Alexander Rossi to find Alex or James. And then John Green is really easy to find. Just Google his name and you will get 20 million results. He is fantastic. Uh, I hope you guys liked it. And if you really did love it, then there is a part two of this episode which you can find by searching for Off Track with Hinch and Rossi on CastBox or your podcast app of choice. We really appreciate you guys spending the time. Uh, We will see you in two weeks with a fantastic interview. I think you're really going to like it, especially if you liked this one. Uh, You can find us online again at thepodglomerate.com or let us know what you thought of this episode at askofftrack.com or at The Podglomerate, or at WWDW Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Uh, We really appreciate the time that you spent with us, and the music that you heard in the beginning of the show is from uh, Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. Actually, you know what? He he did the music for Off Track, too. So he did the music that you heard throughout the entire episode. Uh, I hope you like it. If you did, check him out at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you in two weeks. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.